Hey there, fellow members of the concrete construction industry. Before we get started today, I want to take a moment to address something important. As professionals in this industry, we understand the challenges we face and the constant need for up-to-date knowledge and valuable insights. That's why we're here, providing you with a podcast that caters specifically to our community. But let's be real. Producing the show requires a significant investment of time, effort, and resources, and that's where we need your support. We're embracing the value for value model, which means we're reaching out to you, our dedicated listeners, to help us sustain and enhance the podcast. Think about the value you gain from our episodes, the practical tips, the industry trends, and the expert interviews. We want to keep delivering that value to you, but we can't do it alone. Instead of interrupting your listening experience with ads or sponsorships, we're relying on your generosity. If you find value in what we do, we kindly ask you to contribute what you can. Your support helps us continue producing high-quality episodes that address the specific challenges and interest of our concrete construction community. From supporting the cost of equipment and hosting fees to bringing in industry experts for exclusive interviews, your contribution makes it all possible. We understand that every business and individual has different capacities to give, and no amount is too small. Whether it's a one-time donation or a recurring contribution, we appreciate your commitment. By supporting us, you become an essential part of our mission to provide valuable content tailored to our industry's needs. Together, we can elevate our professional knowledge and expertise. So please take a moment to visit our website, ConcreteLogicPodcast.com, where you'll find a donation page that makes supporting us quick and easy. Thank you for being an integral part of our concrete construction community. With your support, we'll continue to build a brighter future for our industry. What is the most used man-made material on earth? You guessed right, it's concrete. Look around, it's everywhere. Sidewalks, driveways, foundations, floors you stand on, and even entire buildings are made out of concrete. So why don't we discuss it more? In each episode of Concrete Logic, we will explore one concrete-related topic with the help from industry professionals that are shaping the future of the trade. We'll talk with suppliers, contractors, architects, engineers, specialists, and even some proponents of competing materials about their views of concrete and their vision of its future. And welcome to another episode of the Concrete Logic Podcast. And today I have Tim Blankenship with me today. He's going to talk about uh, polished concrete. Tim, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I've been in the concrete industry for the last 37 years. I've been on place and finish. I've been laser screen operator. I mean, warehouse manager, project manager. I've kind of worked one into the other. Been self-employed for the last 10 or 12 years now, polishing concrete. So, I mean, I feel like we had a good background for polishing. We've done industrial floors, high rises, super flats. So if it's in concrete, well, I've pretty much been around it or done it sometime or another. So, you know, ended up into the polished concrete, which I enjoy it. it it's, it's simple, but it's not every floor is different. And you get to be able to adjust to it. And our floors are only as good as what the concrete finishers give us. So, you know, the floors start a long time before we get on the job site, you know, we need to review mixed designs with the concrete contractors, make sure we have something that we can polish. Talking about the FFFLs, then going through how to finish the edges, because edges always seem to be a problem. 
whereas at trial machine, riding trials get close, and then they finish them by hand. And then when we get to polish, it comes out to a different color because the density is different. So there's a lot of planning going up front before the polishing ever even starts. So, Yeah. Yeah. So Tim and I were talking briefly before we started, and uh, he, uh, he made a very good point. He says uh, concrete contractors typically, uh, they, they do either do polishing concrete or how did you frame it, Tim? You either do polishing concrete or you, or you just do well, the regular stuff like I do. Right. Like I said, most of the concrete contractors don't polish floors and most of the polishers don't finish concrete. So yeah, there's always a gap in between there, what we need and what we get. Yeah. It's a specialty. You're, you're a specialist. Um, so yeah, we avoid that stuff big time. So we always exclude it as, as best as we can. Um, but like you, you mentioned, Tim, uh, being aware of where the polished concrete is on a job is, is very important with any floor finish, really, when you're the concrete contractor, because you want to make sure that you're uh, setting, setting up the next trade. So uh, that's what I'm hoping uh, Tim's going to help us with today. Uh, so we can, uh, maybe we could start off with, uh, uh, with uh, pre-planning. So we've talked on this podcast uh, several times, Tim, about the, the pre-construction plan or the pre-pour plan and uh, getting everyone involved uh, that's uh, a stakeholder in, in the job. And I imagine, I can't think of one that I've had the polishing guy on the job, so I must have screwed something up. I might have screwed something up, Tim, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, that, I would say you want to be a part of that meeting, wouldn't you? Yes. Pre-construction definitely want to be part of because there's so many moving parts for the floors. I mean, you got to think the floor is the finished product. So, you know, without planning ahead that we spend a lot of time doing schoolwork and I'd say 80% of the time we're repairing the floors before we even get started because during the construction or the edges didn't turn out right, expansion joints were loose from the walls. I mean, Floor's not flat, so we end up with aggregate exposure in one place and none in the other. Occasionally find a footprint that finished or left behind. I mean, it's just walking on it, which you have to do, but there's just so many little variables that pop up. And again, you know, when we get there, it's basically a blank canvas. So whatever they've done to it before we got there, we have to deal with afterwards. So, I mean, again, the pre-planning part is knowing you're going to polish it, knowing it needs to be flat taking time to do the edges, uh, even isolations, which you have to deal with them, but usually somebody either not edge them, they'll run over it and it'll be ragged, or they'll go over the box itself and it has a tendency to crack. Now I have to go find it and dig it out. So yeah. it's just, we, we play a lot of mystery stuff here, trying to figure out, we find drains and clean outs all the time. We're polishing a floor and you'll find a round circle in the floor where it cracked. Okay, we now know something's under there. So we'll dig it out and fix it. And, uh, you know, the, like I said, the polishing itself is anywhere from six to 10 steps. And it all comes down to the floors being different. And what we typically test a floor to start with is what they call Moles pencil test is where you scratch it and try to figure out what bond a diamond. You're familiar with saw blades and how they have a hard bond 
for medium for for asphalt and a soft bond for hard concrete this and that yeah like diamond blades yeah well we had the same thing we deal with except for we end up dealing with five or six different bonds and different grits i mean at any given time we can be toting 60 to 100 thousand dollars in diamonds just so that we roll up on a job that we're able to adapt to whatever we have going on to start polishing so yeah so can you talk a little bit about the um you maybe you're going to get to this you said there's six or seven steps that you got to do um i guess first off let's uh uh, for for our listeners, let's tell them what the polished concrete is. Is it's that shiny look, right? The shiny concrete floor that probably most people see when they walk into like a. I'm trying to think like a bank, like entrance of a bank, or where else do you see polished concrete um, that people would notice? Actually, the two most common places you'll find it is Home Depot and Walmart. Oh, there you go. Everybody goes so, there. I mean, everybody goes to one or the other. Right. So. And again, it, every floor is different so that we have to adjust to it. And used to, the specs would tell you to, they tell you what grits. Now, grit is a size diamond, which controls the aggregate exposure, whether you want large aggregate, medium, or no aggregate. And that all comes, you know, depends on what the architect and engineer are looking for. Uh, very common, they have what they call a salt and pepper finish which let me back up uh, concrete polishing council has set standards for, or try to set standards as far as polished concrete goes. And they determine a, your, the sheen level of what you get from whether it being a flat finish, a medium, a high shine, or basically mirror like shine. And then they said aggregate exposure from a cream finish, which is just, you hit it and you barely expose the sand, which is kind of, what you get on new floors, it's really hard to get on old floors because, again, if you're grinding glue off or you're removing mastics, you have to grind through it first. At that point, you're breaking the surface on it, which leads us to what the second step would be a salt and pepper, which is some fine aggregate, some large aggregate. And that that uh, comes down to how the floor is poured, how flat it is, to determine the variable in your aggregate exposure. And then the last case is you got a coarse aggregate, which you grind all the way down the surface till you have full rock showing. Gotcha. So, so what are the home depots in the Walmarts? What, are, what, are, which grade is that? When you go to a home depot, they're basically ground to like a 400 grit. So it's got just a little bit of shine when you look at it, but not much. So you got some, some light reflectivity, then when you go to Walmart, it seems to be common now. They have a high shine. You walk in the door and has kind of a mirror look to it to start with. You kind of see a little bit of, ref you see some of the reflections from the aisles, the uh, clothes, the lights reflect. So it's a higher reflectivity and clarity. So, and how you get there, again, I, I hate to keep repeating it, but every floor is different depending on where you start. And we usually have three different types of diamonds that we run through the process. One being a metal bond, which is where you do the initial cutting. And it goes anything from a 16 grit, which is a very large diamond, the exposed aggregate and cut the surface off up to 120 grit, which is a very fine diamond. That way you're barely exposing the sand on it. Well, after we go through the metal bonds, which it could be, you know, it could be one step. It could be three steps, depending on the 
floor itself and the aggregate exposure they're looking for. And then sometimes when you're looking for a full aggregate, we actually have bush hammers, just like you'd have on a jackhammer, but these hammers go in the bottom of the grinder and they chew the top off and give you that same texture, just like a bush hammer does. Huh. At that point, then you'll go to a 30 grit diamond and you'll, you'll cut the roughness off and you've exposed your aggregate. Oh. So, so after we got that determined, let me back up. Now all this happens on a sample typically. So the architect can say, yeah, yeah, I like it. Or, you know, maybe let's do something different, which has been known to happen a time or two. So, but after the metal bonds, we get into running what they call a hybrid, which is a, maybe a mixture of ceramic resin and metals together. And what that does is that will take the scratches out from the floor that you ran the metals. And they say polishing, but you got to think the whole first four or five steps, you're really scratching the floor, trying to expose the sand, get the irregular irregularities out of it and stuff like that. And the polishing does actually start till you get to like a 400 grit. And at that point, you'll always see this shine changes from, you know, 400 to an 800. All of a sudden, you know, it's kind of shiny. You wonder what's going on when you hit the next step. The polishing the 800 grit all of a sudden you've got a reflection to it it's you no know, starting to get real shiny you clean it and you're thinking that looks pretty good so but now we also go to a 1500 grit which increases the clarity on the floor i mean the shine doesn't change a whole lot but the clarity does so now the last step we go to a 3000 grit diamond which is very high and at that point, you end up with mirror-like qualities to the floor. Now, with polishing, you also got to be somewhat of a chemist to do all this. You have densifiers that go in to harden the surface. You've got a structural urethane grouts that go on the floor to fill pinholes and uh, repair damages. Then they have what they call a, a guard, which is kind of like an acrylic sealer semi-penetrating. And then after that, they have full penetrating sealers that go in for oil, water repellency, and stuff like that. So when you put a system together, I mean, it's going all the way from what we're going to start with grinding to what chemicals we're going to use, how much repair work, and what all you know, in, entailed with it. Uh, usually the first step, which I, I forgot, is that you've cleaned and filled your joints, your saw cuts. And again, they either get an epoxy joint filler or a two-part polyurea joint filler. And you do that first because as you start grinding, the diamonds have a tendency to grab the edge of your joints mm -hmm. and either scratch or sometimes when you soft cut, you know, you'll get a little bit of raveling to your joints. Well, the diamonds can make that worse by taking a raveled joint already and extending it a little bit. So... It's again, it's going in here and reading your floor to start with and seeing how you're going to start, how you're going to address it. Uh, if you're going to expose the aggregate in your floor, you really want to fill your joints first. So as you cut it down, you don't break the edges off. So again, on our part, we do a lot of concrete repair work too. So when we run across the broken edges, all of a sudden we're taking urethane mortars and stuff like this. We're trying to match colors to get the floor as close as we can. So, I mean, polishing concrete is actually a lot more than just pushing the machine around. So, yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of work. No, uh, you, you don't make it sound uh, appealing, uh, Tim. It sounds like a lot of hard work. But uh, 
let's uh so the reason why owners want polished concrete i, I assume it's easier to maintain and also maybe reflect reflective of like light and stuff is that why they polish concrete yes uh you think average owners if before polished concrete they run a vct or tile so they're always scrubbing the floors they're cleaning them they're waxing them after a few more times in there stripping the wax off redoing it and over the years i've seen typical maintenance calls for let's say a vct floor runs about a dollar to a dollar and a quarter a square foot per year well you know that adds up to be a lot of money think home depot's 130,000 150,000 square feet so that's just maintenance cost yeah well the maintenance for polished concrete is typically dry is a dust mopping like scrubbing there's no wax, no sealers. There's nothing to strip and redo. Oh, that's cool. The maintenance costs on the polished concrete, depending on your traffic, typically runs anywhere from twenty cent to thirty-five cent a foot. So you I mean you got almost a dollar a foot savings. Uh, a lot of school systems are going to polished concrete for that that very reason. You think one school system, you know, could have a million, a million and a half square feet over multiple schools? All of a sudden, they're saving a dollar a foot in maintenance. So, yeah. Or Walmart have what thirty million square feet across the country, or something. So, something crazy like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just that, that's the biggest thing is that some people like the aesthetic looks. They like the shine. It it has a clean look to it. A lot of warehouses are going to polished concrete a for maintenance. And B, with the reflection, they're able to tone down the light some. I mean, you're using less lights for the same amount that you would if it wasn't polished. I mean, the re reflectivity adds a lot to the floors. Uh, years ago, it did some white reflective floors and put the white color hardener on the floors warehouse. And it just made the total difference night and day from a, a, a white floor versus a standard gray floor. Just... Then when you add polishing on top of that, it's just a huge difference in light reflectivity. So yeah. they say that, you no, know, have read several times that where the uh, light reflectivity is better, where you have better lighting, uh, employees have a better attitude, they work. It, has, it, it, it just it phases everything all the way around. I guess the psychological effect to it, too. You're in a clean, bright warehouse instead of a, a, instead of a dungeon. So yeah make life a little bit better uh huh that's cool and uh uh we 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 hit on it a little bit um the so yeah most do i'm I'm curious when you when you're doing a home depot or a walmart do they have a pre-con pre-pour meeting oh yeah Oh, they, okay. It's yeah. okay. That's good. When you get to the two, the big box stores. Yeah. I mean, you'll end up having the engineers, architects, contractors, and everybody there. Yeah. Now, when you get into the smaller stores and the schools and systems like that, which, you know, they'll have a pre-pour, but usually they won't invite the concrete polisher because they're taking the concrete guy. Or when you get there, the last pre-construction meeting I went to, actually, we had the pump guy, the ready mix, everybody but the concrete guy. So it's like, <laughs> Okay, we'll talk. I don't know what good it's going to do. And right. at that point in time, concrete guy comes in, does what he does, and we deal with it after the fact. So, right. you know, the biggest thing is, and for anybody who is planning polished concrete, is to remember 
we can only give you what you give us. I mean, again, if you give us a floor with, you know, ups and downs in it, ridges, uh, unfinished edges per se, or when your column isolations don't match, A, because they took the sidewalk mix and poured in there, just it's what concrete they had that day to decide to fill it in with. Or uh, as, as much people would hate it, is when you're finishing column isolations, you actually need to finish them out with like an eight inch stair trowel. That way you can put the pressure on it and get it to somewhat match the floor you're turning into. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, the larger the trowel, the less density you get with it. So you put more pressure. And you think you got a 150 pound guy out there trying to measure the pressure from a riding trowel. So doesn't quite work that way, but there are things they can do to make it work better. So, yeah. I mean, I know I spent several years with Baker and we didn't end up getting the same mix pouring our column isolations that we did with the floor, which nowadays seems to be uncommon. It seems, you know, you just get whatever you get and throw it in there and leave it. Somebody else to deal with it. So, yeah, but, yeah, we don't no. get away. We don't get away with that. We gotta, no. You got to do it right. Uh, huh. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. So, you, yeah, you run that polish machine over the top of that isolation joint. The, the, you're talking about the diamonds around the, yes. the column. And there's probably a, you can tell really quick. Well, you know, the isolations, it's not uncommon to get a full aggregate exposure because they poured it high or one side's off level. Yeah. Uh, we actually, we did a, big warehouse floor a while back and they laser screened the floor and 90% of the floor looked good, except for the fact they didn't check their form work from time to time. And all of a sudden you'd see it run downhill to a column isolation where somebody had stepped on the forms and it dropped a quarter to three eighths of an inch. Well, we're wet polishing the floor. So guess where all that water wants to go and it shows real big then. So yeah, bird bath, but, uh, Again, FF and FLs are really important on the polishing part because it determines what kind of floor we can give you. Yeah. And, you know, the diamonds are made to float with the floor per se. So if you've been in an airport and you saw the terrazzo look down through there and it has that wavy look to it, mm-hmm. well, that's they polished the floor, but they didn't cut the floor because they can't. You know, terrazzo goes anywhere from, I think, about three-eighths of an inch thick, but when they're polishing the floors, if they cut through it, now you've got regular concrete again that can burn through there, which is happens again when we do overlays. If you don't have consistent depth on it, all of a sudden you got this nice brand new looking overlay on the floor, and all of a sudden there's a big ugly spot right in the middle where the floor was too high. So, and again, when we're polishing floors, it's not just concrete. There's concrete overlays that come in for old floors, remodels, and make it look new again. But at that point, now you're mechanically preparing floors. Uh, you're typically putting down epoxy, bonding agent with sands in them, and then mounting to the, uh, you're mechanically bonding the overlays to the existing floor. And then you come in and polish it afterwards. The difference with the overlays though, is you pour it and by, I don't know, Three to four hours later, you're already hitting 3,000 PSI on it. And by 24 hours, you're hitting 6,000 PSI. Mm. So you're polishing it the very next day. Whereas with the concrete, you know, you're typically waiting 28 days or several months later to polish it. Uh, We've had several discussions with ASCC and the Concrete Polishing Council about they have written 
basically their specifications for polishing. And they're talking about, you know, measuring the FFFLs at the beginning of the job. But then they're talking about the polishing contractors coming back, verifying the flatness afterwards. Well, first couple items you're familiar with the FF and FL testing, they stay away two foot from all edges and penetrations. Well, where does most of the curling effect go to? It goes to the edges. Right. So here we are making this floor and all of a sudden you can look in that owner looks through there and all this aggregate is exposed on the joints or where the construction joints are. Well, concrete finisher, and I hate to pick on y'all because I was one, but well, I passed my FF and FLs. Well, that's great. But the minute you got off of it and saw cutted, your floor started moving, whether your joints come up where they curl and where again, you know, they didn't even measure the edges where one form meets the other. Uh, several times I've seen where the riding trowels, depending on rotation, they pull mud away from the edge or throw it toward the edge. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're doing a wall line in a school, most schools have block walls. So within that last inch, it can roll up a quarter to three-eighths of an inch. just has a straight roll up on the wall. And now we're sitting there having to dig it flat. So all of a sudden, you got aggregate exposure all down the wall line. Whereas with the some of the uh, more professional, not more professional, that's a bad way to say it, but some of the finishers who understand that when they run the riding trowels or walk behinds, either way down the wall lines, they'll make sure it pulls the mud away from the wall. That way we don't have as much of that to deal with. But when you're running pans, you know, have you watch the guys when they're not straight, at, uh, not check rod in the floor and they get on a little bit wet and you see the big, uh, thick cornrows in between the pans. Mm-hmm. Okay, they go down, they come back, they know they're going to hit it again, and they run the pan over that cornrow. Well, it just kind of scattered it out. It's still there. So, and it shows because you, you know, FF and FLs, you're talking what thousandths of an inch when they measure a floor. Right. So, but them thousandths of an inch when you're grinding a floor show up sometimes. But I mean, the better the floor is, the better the polish is and the consistency. Right. Uh, what What else, uh, other than the FF numbers, do you, uh, should we look out for before we pour, pre-pour meeting? Oh, pre-pour meeting is, again, FF and FLs are important. Joint layouts are important. I mean, to keep to your standards, a uh, lot of drawings lately we see it says, there's no, there's no saw cut pattern listed in the structurals. So they say 15 by 15 max. So during the bidding process and the, and the planning process, we're based on, you know, 15 by 15. Then we get out to the job and now it's cut 12 by 13. So everything increases. Uh, it's just a lot of planning up front, uh, curing process. Okay. We've already talked about the placing. Now, one thing when you're pumping concrete, you make sure the aggregate doesn't segregate because you don't want rock pockets showing up here and there. You know, sometimes when you're pumping a dryer mix, the cream will kind of separate from the rock, and all of a sudden you got all this exposure when we go polishing the floor because the majority of our time, we're knocking the cream off the surface. So whatever's right there below the surface, we get to find it. So, but then after that, we've got it placed, we got it flat, forms look good. We want to run a eighth inch edger on our edge form, our isolations. So that ties in nice and neat instead of a three eighths or a half inch. 
because in your joint, which is going to be an eighth inch wide, turns out being a half inch wide, even if it's not an expansion joint. So from that point is cleaning the floor when they're saw cutting it. It's also watching skid plates on the early entry saws because they have a tendency to scratch the floor. Well, when the scratches come in, unless we're grinding to heavy aggregate, that shows. Another thing people don't think about is, you know, with the OSHA thing, we have to deal with silica every day. And a lot of companies now have put vacuums on their early entry saws. But the ones that don't, they'll sit there and saw it, leave the sawdust piled up on the edges, and they'll clean it off at the end of the day. Well, with that sawdust is sitting there, that floor's already curing, and you end up with differential curing just on the saw joint where the dust sit there, and all of a sudden you'll have a darker line on your joints. It's just because the dust sit there. So there's a lot of things that affect the floor. So once we get that done, now we get to our favorite part, curing. How do you cure the floor? Do you wet cure it? Do you spray compound on it or what? Well, used to people put plastic down. They wet the floor, put plastic down. Well, have you ever seen a roll of plastic go completely flat? Probably not. No. So all of a sudden you've got curing, differential curing again, and you're starting to see lines and bubbles where the plastic wasn't flat on the floor. So, you know, they've gone away from that. Now they've gone to curing blankets. So wet the floor, roll it out. You know, they've tried to overlap as little as possible so they can stretch it out a little more. Well, then as the floor dries, they just start to flip over and come back and exposing it to the air the first seven to 10 days. And again, now we're getting differential strips where you'll see a white strip down the middle of the floor and it's dark on both sides. It's where the sun cured that one strip different than the other. So then, you know, a lot of them will go to a dissipating curing compound to kind of not get the marks from the wet cure. Wet curing is actually the best for the floor, but if you can't keep the blankets wet, you can't keep them down flat, there's all variations that you have to explain to the owner afterwards. I mean, you could even grind all the way down to an exposed aggregate full thing and still have a color difference because, you know, concrete cures from the bottom up. So, you know, all that time is curing different. And I don't know, you may have seen recently on LinkedIn, I said, some photos where the guys were putting curing compounds on the floors and the sidewalks. And for some reason, some people just don't seem to get it. Almost like they put a thumb over the end and it just kind of spits everywhere. And it never goes away. Look like they cured with a paintball gun. Yes. So, (laughs) but like I said, once it does that, a lot of times there's no getting away from it. So the polishers are pretty much stuck with the canvas you give them. So, and that, I mean, affects us is saw cutting, the curing, the placement, everything it has to deal with the product that we can give you. So what I like to say is, you know, if the finishers work with us, we'll give them the best floor we can. But, you know, something we've seen recently over the last few years is saying when the concrete polishers start work, they accept the floor as is. Well, the thing is, when we start, usually, you know, do a lot of schools. I said, we don't come in for nine months to a year. Well, we've got a year's worth of dirt and mortar and stuff on it. Can't even see what the floor really looks like. And then even with a new floor, sometimes you won't find some of the uh, deficiencies until you make your first pass. That's when you cut all the garbage off the very top of it. And all of a sudden, now you see problems. 
But they said, well, you started this years. It's like, well, it doesn't quite work that way. I mean, you get burned every now and then, but that even comes back to the pre-planning. Yeah. Uh, recently, we've seen a more protection going down on the floors after they're poured. Uh, whether the biggest one we see outside you know, for uh, open floors is called Scudo, which is a fabric back material, rubber type mat on the top, and it's adhered to the floor. It's glued down. So, you know, you have to let floor cure for 14 days. Then you come in and you glue this material down to the floor to keep it from getting damaged during the construction. Cool. So, uh, works very well. And it, 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 you know, your new floor stops the day you finish pouring it. After that, it's used because they start building on top of it. They're hanging steel off of it. Yep. And everything the owner doesn't want to see in his floor ends up getting there. You get screws in the lift tires and they start leaving little divots here and there. You get the scissor lift that sprung a hydraulic leak and got a nice puddle that's not coming out. So, I mean, basically anything the owner doesn't want to see, he gets nine months to a year's of it. So, right. but the protection is definitely, I think is a plus sign and you're knowing they're wanting to protect the floor or trying to get the best floor possible. So, yeah. What about the the mixed design? Is there anything that you look out for there? Or you see a mixed design, you're like, oh yeah, we're going to be, we're going to be successful or maybe well, not. <laughs> uh, mixed designs, uh, like I said, I should talk earlier, but we're, uh, what we're seeing a lot now is the type one L cement and it's causing some problems with crazing because again, the water, the water demand with the type one L is increased a lot. I mean, because the minute you're pouring, instead of curing, it's basically it's eating the water up itself, trying to make up for the fineness. Where you know type one L cement is where they're grinding additional limestone and putting in place of the clinker. And one issue we found out with that is depending on where you are, it's all different. One guy's running five percent limestone, somebody else is running fifteen percent limestone, and it's changing from batch to batch. And you know when you're doing a larger job, is how do you get the same cement for the entire project? You usually don't because they have you no know, different tanker comes in or cement changes and all that affects the finishing on y'all's end. And then it affects the polishing on the other end. Uh, we did a floor recently and they wet cured the floor 14 days. It poured out nice. It looked good. And the minute we made our first pass, all of a sudden it looked like alligator skin. Cause it had just crazed. I mean, literally in like one inch by two inch little pieces and there's like 9,000 feet of cracks. It looks like. So, uh, something we've seen here in the last year or so, we actually had one mix we just did and it was horrible. It was type one L cement, 50%, 30% fly ash and 20, 20% slag. And it's like, you know, Y'all need to go ahead and call the carpet guy or somebody. We got through it. We ended up grouting the floors and doing a lot of remedial work. But, uh, you know, natural sand polishes better than manufactured mm -hmm. because the natural sand has got more round. Mm -hmm. it, it seats in and it cuts better when you're polishing, whereas manufactured is small and granular. And when you're polishing, diamonds have a kind of a straight edge to it also. And when they're going over, they have a tendency to make the sand pop out so as it angular edge as you're grinding you'll get a lot of pop outs from time to time with them so i mean water cement ratios 
you know, preferably you'd like to be around 0.45 to 0.5, which is pretty common in any industrial floor. Mm. A lot of uh, non-industrial schools, stuff like that, you get into 0.55, 0.57. They bleed like a stuck pig. And the, the more the water sits, the bleed water sits on top of the surface, the weaker it's getting. So just a while back, we sit there and did a school floor. I actually got went out and watched them pour the floor. Went, laid the, the floor laid for seven and a half hours. Didn't have nothing on it. It's just bleed water everywhere. And they're squeegeeing the bleed water off. And then two hours later, the floor's finished. It was 7,000 feet. But it just went from nothing and laying there for seven and a half hours. Like I said, and all that bleed water sitting on top, it changes the water cement ratio on your surface. Well, we're waiting to see what we get when we go back and polish. So it'll be interesting to find out. Polishers, I mean, concrete finishers did a great job. They got it down. But, you know, there's items that was beyond their control. We're going to wait and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, then we find out that also with the fly ash in the slag, it reduces the calcium hydroxide, which is actually what makes the concrete get hard. It's the chemical end of it. So usually when the uh, cement mixes with water, it forms, it hardens, and the pores are filled with crystals, which is where the calcium is you know, combined as chemical reaction, causing it to harden the floor. Well, the calcium hydroxide goes down when you put in the fly ash and the slag, which is also reducing the porosity of your floor. So, you know, your first thought is, hey, tighter floor, that's good. Well, tighter floor is great, especially outside when, you know, you don't want the porosity out there and you want it to sit. But with concrete polishing, we're trying to put hardeners, chemicals into the floor to maintain our shine. Because it again, it builds more calcium hydroxide and it makes the floor harder. Well, if it doesn't soak in, if it doesn't penetrate, then you know you actually have less of a shine to your floor and it's going to be harder to maintain because the chemicals have to go in for a reason. Now, when you go putting dyes in the floor, you, know, you can color floors with integral color, you can put dyes on them, acid stains, and, and polished floors, mostly the most common is the dye. When the floor is tight, the dye don't penetrate either. So again, the mix designs go back to control of what you can do and not do down the ways with it. Yeah. So. Yeah, that is a, a lot to uh, consider when you're just, uh, I, I know they're not doing those at the, at the schools, thinking about all that stuff. May, I, I, I can see like a big, big box retailer and stuff getting getting a consultant on board and helping them out with that and they do them over and over and over again but for the schools and stuff they typically we don't build those all the time in in the same area so i'm sure you that's probably where you see a lot of your issues well it's like we've had some schools where the ready mix industry is busy as they are nowadays they can't supply the concrete so all of a sudden we've got contractors pouring concrete out of different plants, different manufacturers. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden we have a site, we meet up one slab to the other. One looks gray and one looks brown. I mean, there's a, a straight color difference and you can tell that it was you no know, two different plants or something, yeah. or even larger pours. You'll run, you know, say you're pouring several thousand yards, you'll run three or four plants for the one pour to service it. But you get variations in every single load if you ain't careful. 
because again, each plant has got something a little bit different, whether the sand's off a little bit or a different cement. I mean, one thing that changes, even changes the colors are your cement before, you, you know, without color, without dye, anything else, is your aggregates in your sand. Your natural sand will give you more of a brown tone, whereas manufactured gives you more of a gray. So, I mean, there's just a lot. And one thing we see a lot, and architects want a sample brought into their office to, for polished concrete. And you can tell, look, I can bring you a sample and I'll guarantee it won't match your floor at all. Every floor is unique to itself because of the, the makeup of the concrete mix, mm -hmm. the way it's treated. So, you know, and you'd hate to take them a little sample and it's nice and perfect. Well, they didn't give you a perfect floor or a perfect mix or anything else. So, you know, we, we typically do mock-ups on site is what we tell them. You know, we'll pick a 10 by 10 or a 4 by 4. So, but this is, again, the polishing part is probably the easiest part to it. You get out there and just run around in circles, it seems like. The guy's watching you in the same place. I mean, you got 7,000 feet. You run over it eight times. So your 7,000 feet turns into 56,000 square feet of polishing time you go one step to the other. Wow. So, I mean, they'll watch you in the same spot. It could be two or three days and going, is every getting done? But it's just a process you go through. And then you lose time when you fix floors, you grout them, this and that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I realize it takes a special kind of person to polish floors. I was always the excitement when we polished and when you're, when you're finishing, you're pouring it out, you're done, you see it, it you know, it's right there. Oh, we did good. and go on. So I remember many a days watching the guy running the dipstick. I'd hang around. I'm already finished pouring, but I want to know what numbers we got, you know, how, how flat did we get it? So, but when polishing, you're just running over it, over it. And three days later, you'll see what you did. So yeah. it's different mentality altogether. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, this was great, Tim. Uh, a very good introductory to polished concrete. This is our first polished concrete uh, episode on the podcast. So I appreciate you doing that today. T uh, you're very active on LinkedIn, have very informative uh, posts, and that's how I found you. What's, uh, what's the best way to get a hold of you if folks want to reach out? Well, I'm always on LinkedIn, but then also they can get me on my email is Tim at blankenshipconcrete.com. Yeah. And we'll uh, share that with our, on our, our, our show notes for everybody. And uh, Tim, I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Yes, sir. Uh, hope I was a little bit informative anyway. No, it was so. perfect. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Seth. Y'all have a good day. Okay. You too. And that concludes another episode of the Concrete Logic Podcast. I hope you got some value out of that episode and learned a thing or two. If you did, visit our website, ConcreteLogicPodcast.com. Click on the Show Support tab and learn how you can be listed as a producer of an episode. Again, that's ConcreteLogicPodcast.com. Click on Show Support tab to learn how you can support the show. And as always, Mike Dutton will take us out. Ring, ring, that alarm always sings a couple hours before the sun comes up. Open up the side, put some diesel in the lights, and wait till the trucks roll up. Yeah, 
This ain't how most folks live their lives Dripping in sweat, working overtime But while they're tying their ties for their night 